Tonight's New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? God, we are thankful that you are a God that speaks that you have entered our world in our darkness, in our blindness, and our ears that don't hear, with the intention that we would know you. And so we thank you in advance. We give you praise for the work you're doing all throughout this service, and even now as we look more closely at your word. In Christ's name, amen. A news journalist who made it his mission to debunk the Christian faith ends up defending it. A world-renowned geneticist who was an atheist in graduate school goes on to be an expert in the existence of God. A young black man shaped by negative experience with white police officers and then, in membership with the Black Panthers, goes on to be an agent of reconciliation between black and white. A member of the Ku Klux Klan and on the FBI's most wanted list becomes a Christian pastor and a president of a Christian organization. A young woman who grows up in a strict fundamentalist Christian home wanders from the church for years and then returns to the very faith she vowed she'd never serve again. A high school student who's at the height of his popularity 
in the crowd, becomes a social outcast because of decisions he's made in light of his faith. A Muslim woman in a small village undergoes beating and death threats because of her change of faith, and the very father that beat her has his heart softened and turns his heart to the very God she has now worshipped. Why does this happen? Why has it happened over and over for thousands of years at every economic level within every people group? It's simple. It's the power of the gospel. That's what's done it. The power of coming to know the God that made you through the person of Jesus Christ. The power of coming to know that God cares about your guilt, he cares about your shame, that God didn't make you to leave you alone. It's that power that causes that radical transformation, and we could go on and on and on and on about things that are really inexplicable apart from that power. And that power is called good news. That's what gospel means. In ancient Rome, when an emperor would uh, win a victory and secure peace and establish his authority, he would send out heralds, angeloi. That's the Greek word we get for angels. And so God, the gospel, is a story of a great king who wins a victory, a victory over sin and death, who secures peace for those who trust him and then establishes authority in their hearts. This is good news of the gospel. And probably the most thorough and deepest explanation we have of this gospel is in the book of Romans, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a first-century church who he had never known personally. And it leads us to a very important thing on the front end. As we begin to embark to study this book of the Bible for early spring, rather uh, fall and early spring, we need to be sure who it's for. Because many times I think when we think about the gospel and who's the gospel is for, it's typically, well, isn't it for that those that are yet to be Christians? For the uninitiated. And yet I want you to notice that Paul says, quote, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, and he's talking to professing Christians. And by that, he's telling us that the gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for those that aren't Christians and those that are Christians. The gospel is for the kid that grew up in the Christian home. The gospel is for the woman that led the college fellowship. The gospel is for the minister that pastors in a church. Because the gospel is God's power for salvation, and we all need it. At our Vision Brunch yesterday, uh, we talked about working out our goal at Grace DC, which is inwardly growing and outwardly serving. That's what we're trying to do. Through knowing our faith and sharing our faith. And it's this knowing our faith that I hope Sunday nights will take us deeper into, knowing what this faith is about. And in that, we get to the potential. See, I think there's this place we get in where even if you've been a Christian for a long time or just new into the game, but it's this idea that, you know, I've got this life I'm living and that I'm struggling with every day. 
I'm struggling with this, this addiction or this character issue or this anxiety or this circumstance. This is my daily life, and then I've got this thing I know. And I wonder, well, why aren't they intersecting more? And it may be because that our knowledge hasn't really grabbed hold of the potential of the thing that we have. I mean, imagine this. Imagine that uh, a friend of yours gets their first smartphone, an iPhone, and you go, how are you enjoying the iPhone? And they go, man, it seems like a lot of money just to make phone calls. You know, phone calls? What do you mean just phone? You know, just to call people. Call people? I mean, don't you know what this thing does? It's a camera. It's a music library. It's a compass. It's a flashlight. It's a computer. I mean, all the potential right there. Or take another illustration. Maybe you, you take up guitar, and you learn three chords on the guitar, and you think, you know, the guitar, it's a simple instrument. It's a, it's a helpful instrument. I'm glad we have these three chords. And then you hear someone like Paco de Lucia, or Joe Pass, or Jeff Beck, or Mike Stern, and you go, I didn't know anything. I knew nothing of the depth of this instrument. A friend of mine is a really well-established keyboard player. He's uh, played keyboards for Kenny Loggins, for, uh, currently for Carrie Underwood. I mean, this is a guy that really is established. And he posted on Facebook, have, have any of you all uh, heard this guy, Jacob Collier? You know, 22-year-old. Oh, you, ha you haven't heard of him? That's a first, isn't it? Where I actually say I know something and you don't know it. Okay, I'll stop there. That's, I'm sure there's some passage about gloating. But anyway, you got to check this guy. He's 22 years old. He's from England. Amazing. Amazing. And my established friend right, writes on Facebook after this video. I think the guy's singing the Flintstones, and he sings it in like eight parts. And, but he, he, he says on that, he says on the uh, Facebook, he goes, I quit. You know, I know nothing about music. I, there's things he's doing I can't even hear. My hope is, however you've heard the gospel, as we go deeper, you will go, I knew nothing of it. It was so much deeper, so much greater, so much more beautiful than I ever thought, this power that God has given to you and I. And so we'll be looking at it every Sunday evening together. And our community groups, those are our small groups of folk, will be looking at it. I want to encourage you... Uh, my wife was reminding me earlier today how our seminary professors would often say, you know, these were letters. Uh, it's good to start by just reading through the thing. Take 30 minutes and just read through it. Won't, that, won't take that long to read. And that'll orient you to what we're going to be talking about. But let's move into, I want to just hit two points as we're introducing the gospel this evening. Uh, the origin of the gospel, where it starts, and the focus of the gospel. What's at the heart of the message? So the origin and the focus. Now, if you are a fan of adventure films, you know often in these films there is some theme about otherworldly power, some power that's not of our, you know, maybe it's Thor and it's his hammer, maybe it's the infinity stone. It's something, right, that's beyond earthly power. And you have to ask yourself, why do we always have those themes in so many movies? Well, it's because we are well aware of the finiteness of our own power. I mean, we fantasize about it. We daydream about it. We want to see films about what would it be like to have a power that was beyond my own earthly power. 
Well, that's the gospel. Because its origin is not of men, Paul tells us it's the gospel of God. You can tell the difference between the two, you know. Because you and I have been trying to live out and believe the good news of men and what the world tells us for years. You know, maybe the good news, the gospel of the world, is if you work hard, you can be anything you want and you can succeed. Well, unless you get an injury, unless you get an illness you didn't expect, unless the economy tanks, unless you become a refugee because a dictator is ravaging your, right? So we get that message doesn't quite live up to the good news. Or maybe it's if you get the right body and the right connections and find the right person, then you'll be happy. Well, you know, a dress size never saved a marriage, right? And so there's lots of gospels we're told every day. You could list three or four of them. A mark of earthly gospels is always this idea that the the making of it happen rests on your work, your gifts, and your worth ultimately. And the Christian gospel is the complete flip of that. Its efficacy, its power rests on God's character, God's worth, God's name, and God's initiative. This is the mark of a Christian gospel, the gospel of God, Paul says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who descended from David, and then he goes on to talk about uh, the resurrection and death of Christ. We'll get to that. But I want you to notice something about this origin here. When he says it was promised beforehand in the Scriptures, and there he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He's talking about, you know, the Old Testament, as Christians would refer to it. The good news of the gospel was not invented by the apostles. It was not invented by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was not invented by the New Testament God. Uh, My wife and I, Meg, we were watching uh, Hail Caesar last night, and it's a Coen Brothers film. And, um, you know, it's it's really, it's a, it was really enjoyable. I liked it. It's a comedy basically on the films of 1940 and 50, the big studio films, the epic films like Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments. And in it, you know, they're doing the life of Christ told from a Roman soldier's perspective. And so the studio doesn't want to offend any religious traditions, and it brings in a, a, an Orthodox priest, a Catholic priest, a rabbi, and a reverend. And he wants to feel out, hey, is this going to offend you? You read the script. And the Catholic priest and the rabbi get into this argument about, you know, whose God was meaner. You know, the Catholic says, our God is a God of love in the New Testament, but you have that mean God in the Old Testament right? And this is a typical thing. People say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a mean God, and he's not very forgiving, but the God of the New Testament is loving and forgiving. Well, that's an uneducated person's perspective. Next week, we'll be talking about the wrath of God from the New Testament. And what you find in the Old Testament, it was always God's plan to save the world through the gospel of his Son. It was always his plan. You can go to the third chapter of the Bible. As soon as sin and evil enter the world, a prophecy is said, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The Son of God will crush evil. That's the gospel, the first mention of the gospel, way back in the book of Genesis. And you have the, then you have Moses who said, there's going to be a prophet of all prophets that comes after me, a greater prophet. And then Paul here mentions David, King David, right? The great king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, the one that everybody looked toward. Is he still on his throne? Of course not. He died. 
He couldn't have an eternal throne, so this, this king will have an eternal throne. And then he quotes from Isaiah and Malachi where we talk about the Christ, the Messiah. What I'm saying to you is this, and it's clear all throughout the Scripture, God's answer to the dilemma of humankind, of suffering of evil, has always been that he would send his son to rescue and deliver us. It's always been the gospel from the history of the world. The gospel that God has given us, and that's why we're not at liberty to change it or reshape it. And if we do, it's to our detriment because then we go back to the world's good news, which isn't working for us. So what the temptation is, is we are tempted to reshape the gospel because, you know, it's, it's just tempting to say, well, Jesus was like every other prophet. Or, you know something, this is just one path. And you and I may think, well, that's a harmonious good thing to do. But when we do that, we lose the supernatural power of the gospel. We lose the distinctiveness of this gospel, which is the only gospel of grace, the only gospel that talks about God coming in the flesh, the only gospel that talks about God rising from the dead, the only gospel that talks about God redeeming this world, the world that you and I live in. We lose that, our very hope. You know the cliché, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? For us to go back to that other thing is insane. It's the insanity of sin, we would call it. And yet you and I do it, right? We go back to the destructive thoughts. We go back to the bottle. We go back to the pornography. We go, but we go back to these things because we think it'll save me. It'll make me feel better. God has something better for you and I, a new power. It first hits us in identity and calling. Paul mentions both of those. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart. Um, you know, because Paul understood the gospel was about the Son of God, you know, the, the eternal Son of God coming down to be the lowliest slave. You know, Jesus becomes like a servant slave, the servant God, the slave God. Because he knew that's what it was and that was behind redemption, it totally formed his identity to see himself as a servant. In fact, he literally says he's a servant or slave of the gospel. And that really has a lot to do with how you and I approach life, doesn't it? I mean, think about this. How, are you, how do you approach Monday morning as a master or a servant? Do you expect the day to serve you, or do you expect to serve the day? You know, I, I tend to be the master side. I want the traffic to serve me. I want the metro time to serve me. I want my friends to serve me, right? Maybe this weekend you were like, I didn't have a very fun weekend. The weekend did not serve me well. You know, I did not have fun, right? We look into that day instead of this idea that I am here to serve whatever I have. But then he also says he's called, he's set apart. Now, Paul's talking about his special calling as an apostle, but also the, what it required. He separated himself from wealth, from safety, from a career acclaim because he was climbing up the ladder really fast as a young scholar. So Paul sets that side, but he also reminds us that's for the average believer like you and I too. 
In verse 6 and 7, what does he say? You have been called to belong to Jesus. You've loved by God. You've been called to be a saint. A saint is a holy one. That means someone that understands the gospel sees all of life as holy. For the holy, everything is holy. My job is holy. My neighborhood is holy. My talents are holy. The things I enjoy are holy. The people around me are holy. I see them differently because of that. Both my identity and the calling God has given me. And the motive is totally changed because he says the reason why you're moved is because you belong to God. You belong to him. You know, we, we ache and desire to belong to someone or some group. And we spend a lot of our lives wanting belonging. And this is it belonging to God and his family. So the origin of the gospel shapes us. But second and last point, the focus of the gospel. Um, we'll be spending a lot of time on this, so I'm not going to go on and on about this. Talented photographers and artists and designers know how to focus our eyes. We don't even know they're doing it, but they do it, right? You know, because if you've ever tried to take a photo and not done a good job, you can see, right? You're like, this is not, like, it is not framed upright. It doesn't look good. Paul is the same. He is a talented one to focus on what is at the heart of religion. And we need it because religion can become about so many other things. Just look at the world. I mean, religion can come about self-improvement. I meditate, I chant, or some philosophy, Buddhism. I have something that I wake up in the morning and I do because it centers me. That's what it is. Or for other people, it becomes the way that you do social causes. Or religion becomes the way that I'm connected to a tradition or a custom. Even in the Christian faith, it works that way. For some people, the Christian faith is acts of service. That's what it's primarily about. For other people, it's the finer points of theology. For other people, it's about moral purity. We so easily get sidetracked from what it's about. And so Paul centers us and says, let me tell you what it's about. First of all, it's about God's Son. It's about the Son of God. He is the centerpiece of it all. He says that, the gospel of God's Son, uh, you know, Christ Jesus declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. It's the good news of the personal work of Jesus. He uses the title Christ Jesus. And as I've said before, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title, which means Messiah. It's about the Messiah King coming and conquering sin and evil that you and I might be liberated. It's the Son. But if you look elsewhere in the New Testament, you see the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They have covenanted together to save us. They have covenanted together in the eternal counsel of God. They came together and said, this will be our plan to rescue. Before you and I were even born, God's rescue plan. And I know this gets into the mind of God and the time of God, but hey, that's okay. And it's first for the Jew, for the people through whom the Messiah came, and then for the three names for the world, the nations, the Greeks, and the Gentiles, which means the good news is for the entire world because the entire world needs it, right? I mean, this is where we'd say, no, a Christianity doesn't stay in its little compartment. This is what religious pluralism says. 
And I want to say, no, bring your religion. Bring it to me. If you think it's going to save me, you know, you're mean if you're not bringing it to me. Bring your religion to me, and I'll look at it, and I'll examine it. And if I think it's going to save me, I'll take it. I'm going to bring my religion to you, winsomely, not coercively, because there's one Son of God, and there is one great need. The Christian faith is not about whose mascot Jesus is, right? I love this uh, Old Testament scene where I think it was uh, the angel of the Lord um, appears to Joshua, I think it is. And uh, Joshua says, who are you for, them or us? And he says, neither, <laughs> right? I mean, his idea is I'm for me. God is for establishing his glory. But we all need it because of what it yields, and that is, this is a big thing in the book of Romans. It's a centerpiece of the gospel, the gift of righteousness. You see it here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's from Habakkuk, the prophet, the last quote. Now, this phrase, the righteousness of God, has been debated a lot because the question is, is it talking about the character of God, the righteousness of God, or is it talking about a righteousness that God gives unrighteous people? And it's both. It's really both. The first hand, the righteousness of God, is talking about this idea of how God, how a holy God can save unholy people. You have to ask yourself, you know, modern people tend to say this. Modern people tend to say, um, yeah, I mean, I'll get to heaven and I've got some problems, but God will forgive me because that's God's job. He's forgiving. You know, he's merciful. But then you have to ask yourself, have you ever really forgiven someone? Is it that easy? I mean, it costs, doesn't it? If they really offended you, it costs to forgive people. And in fact, if someone violated someone that was dear to you and you were in the courtroom and the judge said, you know something, I'm feeling merciful today. I know this was a horrendous crime committed, but let's just forgive him. You'd stand up and go, what about justice? Well, it's the same thing with the Christian gospel. You can't say, you know, God's mercy is going to function at the expense of his holiness. This was a conundrum God had to fix. How can he remain holy and just, but at the same time extend mercy to unrighteous people? And he solved it in the gospel. The Son of God comes in the flesh, representing you and I. He comes as a mediator. He has to obey the law perfectly. If Jesus would have sinned once, the deal's off. He obeys the law perfectly, and then he steps in and takes our unrighteousness upon him. Therefore, God can show mercy to those that turn to him, but he can also uphold his justice. The other faiths, you got to answer that question. You got to answer, how can God be merciful? And this is what Paul, so it is about the righteousness of God, but primarily what it's about is the righteousness that comes from God. You see this by the fact that it's a salvation, the power of God for salvation. How can it be salvation if we don't get righteousness? And this is the truth that blew Martin Luther's mind and triggered the Protestant Reformation. You know, Luther was a Catholic monk. He'd been reading the Latin Fathers. And the Latin fathers had always interpreted this verse this way, that the righteousness of God, it's God making you righteous through sacraments in the church. You're unrighteous, but God will infuse righteousness into you. And Luther begins to read the original Greek of the New Testament, and he goes, wait a second. Not only here, but in Philippians, it's talking about a righteousness that is from God. 
I mean, Luther had a really noisy conscience. You know, he was going to confession all the time. You can imagine what good news this was. He was like, wait a second. This is saying that God freely and graciously gives a righteousness to people that don't have it. Where else do you get that? You don't get it anywhere else. I mean, you can go for secular faith, secular gospel is, well, you know, you, you better do pretty well in this life. You better, you, you got a couple times you can screw up, but after that, you better do better. Or you can do lots of faith that say, oh, God will meet you halfway with a little forgiveness and you earn the rest. But this is the faith that says all other faiths, you heard me say this before, are about providing righteousness to God. This one's about receiving righteousness from God. That's the power of it. There's nothing more power than someone loving you unconditionally. There's nothing more powerful than you being shown grace when you didn't deserve grace. I mean, if a congregation gets a hold of this gospel and is unleashed in this city, watch out. That's a radical power. And this is what the gospel is. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Now, why does he say that? Why is he not ashamed? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because if you really start to understand the gospel, it's very humbling and even offensive. Think about it. What does the gospel say to the really smart person? You're not smart enough. You're not smart enough to save yourself. I mean, put your hope in progress and technology, but, you know, it's not going to happen. One of the heights of humanism was sort of in the early 19th century, and there was such optimism about humanism. Then something happened in 1914. You history buffs know what it was? What? War. World War I. And the humanists were like, I mean, there was the progress, the Industrial Revolution was this thought, we're, here we go. And then all of a sudden, this is man. And after that, what do you get? Existentialism. It says, uh, you know, there's no confidence in reason. There's, uh, that's why that philosophy developed. And so the gospel comes to us and goes, you're not smart enough to save yourself. It's offensive. Or imagine what the gospel says to the person that believes if you're nice and moral, you go to heaven. Or for the religious person that believes if I'm more disciplined than the other person, it gives me an advantage over them. Well, it's very offensive because God looks at you and goes, you're not nice and you're not moral and you have no advantage. If you're really going to live, I mean, I mean, if you and I try to live the golden rule just for one day, if you think I'm wrong, tomorrow try to love your neighbor just as yourself, just for a whole day. And you'll probably go, I'm not nice and I don't deserve to go to heaven. It's offensive to right moral people, and it's offensive to modern people that believe in the right of self-expression and freedom. Because it says, guess what? You're not so free. And guess what? Your rights might be really selfish. The gospel is something, and it's tempting to be ashamed of it. It's, it's attempting to go, listen, you know, uh, I really don't think you're smart. I'm smart enough, and I don't think... And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of it because I've been there and I've done that. I try to save myself through morals. I try to save myself from my, you know, two PhDs that I had by the time I was 21. I tried to save myself through discipline and hard work, and it didn't work. And it leads to this last part, to close, an obedience of faith. Now, this is what he means from faith to faith. This is very different. Now, some people are familiar with an obedience out of guilt, an obedience out of fear, an obedience out of kind of to get my name up in lights, an obedience, all sorts of obedience, but this is an obedience that comes from a totally different place of faith. 
of trusting God in His grace. It's an obedience that flows out of grace. And that's what we're about here, inwardly growing, outwardly serving. It's always the obedience that God called for. You see it in the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt. There's the grace. I want you to do this. Live justly, live morally. And that sort of obedience of life will lead you to such devotion and such radical servanthood that guilt and fear can never get you there. I mean, if, you know, if you're here and you're trying to make your mark on Washington and, and you're doing it by your own steam, and you're trying, I, I mean, I give you a couple years. You know, maybe, maybe you'll make it longer. But at some point, you're going to be, I am fried. I am on fumes. It's the grace of God that brings us there. And so, as the gospel is introduced to us, its origin and the center of it is, is our guide through this thing. As we look at all these different things, and for the first 11 chapters, Paul is just going to hammer us with the depth of the gospel. And then in chapter 12, he's going to turn it on and say, this is how you should live. But we're going to go deep into it. And let's pray that God will, you know, do his work. God, thank you so much for your gospel. It is not our gospel. It's your gospel for the power of it, for the hope it gives us. In Christ's name, amen.